kids are missing out on, for me, what was a rite of passages. It was actually sort of an art form that we learned in school, and it was the art of passing notes. Who here remembers passing notes in class? All right. Half of us remember, the other half are like, what do you mean? You just Snapchat, or you text, or you TikTok. I don't know. I literally don't know things I'm saying. I just know kids don't pass notes anymore. It's too easy for them. They just do, do, they just do this, and they communicate everything they need to communicate. Not in our day, kids. We had to take paper and pencil, and we had to learn the art of passing little notes. Who here even sent, like, deflecting notes? Like, you, like, sent, like, a deflection note like this? way so you could get like the real note you wanted over to the person you there's a I mean there was like a I mean there's a true art to this part of the art was at least I'll speak for myself on this regard what was kind of making that first step if you if you liked a girl now, now, if you liked a girl, of course, you couldn't just tell the girl directly in my day. You had to, like, figure out how am I going to go through their friends, right? I got to, like, get to, like, this friend, and then I'm going to go through that friend to think maybe this girl has an interest in me. But you could never just say you had an interest in anybody, right? At, at some point, you'd have to make the big ass, though, and you'd, you'd kind of maybe send this to the friend and be like, you know, you know, I'm not saying that so, I'm not saying that I like so-and-so. I'm saying, what I'm asking is if... If, if they liked me, I might like them back. You know, we, we do this kind of this weird thing where we just kind of be, keep hinting along to it until finally maybe, maybe you remember this one, until finally it was the big ask then. And it was, do you like me? Yes, no, maybe. I, I mean, I, 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 that was a thing for me, like the big thing, the do you like me? Yes, no, maybe. Well, let that be our introduction for this truth that the Exodus story has been revealing to us. Our God has passed the first note. And our God has decided not to play games with us. Our God has not declared, you know, do you like me? Will you worship me? Yes, you know, maybe our God has declared, I am the Lord your God and I love you. I am the Lord your God and I made you and I know you and I love you and I want to be in a relationship with you. Will you come into a relationship with me? Our God has made God's self incredibly vulnerable. We don't think about the vulnerability of God and yet the story of God is God opening himself up to relationship and to access to his people and for his people, of course, culminating in the most vulnerable, transparent, acquiescing move of becoming incarnate. The Christmas story, God coming to be with us, God ultimately surrendering himself on our behalf. God has sent us the love letter, and this is what he has been doing throughout the ages, and we call it covenant, the way that God sends the note, that he enters the relationship, that he wants to seal the deal with us, is that we call it the covenant-keeping God. He entered into a covenant with a man named Abram, and it wasn't Abram, do you like me? Yes, no, maybe. It is Abram. I will be your God. 
and I will make you into a nation, and you will be my people, and I will bless you, and through you will become a blessing to all of the world. And that covenant, he was faithful to it through the ages. Although things got dark, it seemed like there was a detour. It seemed like things may be off track. God was keeping to his promise, his word, his covenant, until it comes to a culmination for us in this Exodus story. And the story of the Exodus is God, again, not saying, do you like me? Yes, no, maybe, but I love you, and I've heard your cry. I have heard your cry for help. And it is our God who sends the deliverer. It is our God who shows the signs and the wonders. It is our God who puts upon Egypt the plagues to demonstrate his faithfulness to his people and the consequences of rebellion and wickedness and injustice and evil. It is our God who parts the Red Sea. It is our God who leads his people out. It is our God who gives them a pillar of fire by day and uh, by cloud by day and fire by night to guide them in both in the direction they need to go and also to protect them from the army that is pursuing them. It is our God who gives them bread when they cry out for food, quail when they cry out for meat, water from a rock when they are dying of thirst. It is our God who has been faithful all along until we come to the Mount of Sinai, and there God confirms his love for them by giving them the law, right? And this was the point of last week that we cannot emphasize too much that God's love comes before the law, that God's deliverance comes before his decrees and the order matters because God must prove himself and his love to us first if we are going to trust and enter into a relationship with him. God knows this of our nature. And so what we know is, what we know, and let's just kind of boil it down now to these two points before we go in deeper. The law has been given not by means for earning God's love, but to show us a way to confirm our love. The law shows us how to confirm God's love. It does not teach us how or, or create a ladder for us to earn God's love. God's love has already been given. It is already there. It is already proven to us. Amen? Are we getting excited? Nobody's getting excited. This is where I want you to get excited before I get into the teaching. God has proven his love to us, and the law is given so that we can confirm it. My wife does not have to earn my love anymore. I made a covenant with her. She does not have to earn my love anymore. It is already there. She can stand on the promise. My kids do not have to earn my love ever. They are a gift from God to me. And I will love them, heart, mind, soul, and strength, through thick and through thin, no matter what. They cannot earn my love. But they can confirm the love, right? I can confirm the love with my wife, and she can confirm the love with me. I can confirm my love for my wife. I can walk in the door, and I can remember, oh, yes, she doesn't like it when I kick off my shoes and leave them by the front door. She wants them in the closet. She doesn't like it when I drop my keys on the counter 
She likes them in the basket. She doesn't like it when I leave my backpack on the floor. She wants it in the office, in the corner. I can confirm my love for her by doing things that I know she appreciates. She can confirm her love for me by keeping the car clean. Please back me up on this or tell me, is this just me and my wife or is this universal? Why do women want a clean house and men want a clean car and you always seem to be fighting about this? Is this, am I, am I preaching to anybody today on just a simple truth? All right, okay, so it's, it's, okay, it's a thing, it's a thing. Or maybe in reverse order, I don't know. For guys, it's usually the car. For wives, it's usually the house. But we can confirm our love for one another by doing things that then show and express that love. But it can't be for earning the love. It can't be for earning the love. So God gives us the law so that he, we can confirm our love for him. And, and then it goes like this. We went into that, that, that silly kind of story about the fence that I told last week. And my daughter but was teaching us that, you know, that, that, that rules without relationship always lead then to rebellion the rules without the relationship lead to rebellion but but rules within relationship they just give us a common ground a place where the love can flourish and can grow and, and i told that story again about, about the about the fence and and how i wanted my daughter eden when she was young and we got our first house to have a place of of flourishing of beauty, of joy, of fun, a playhouse, a trampoline, of games, all in the, the fence. And then I told the story of how she wanted to go outside the fence, and we kind of pushed the analogy a little bit further. If she goes outside of the fence, is she any less my kid? Absolutely not. It just means she's my kid, and she is outside of my protection. She is potentially in danger. She's not in a place where I can watch over her and can keep her safe and keep her flourishing and keep her. No, 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 no. It doesn't end the relationship. It just shows that the relationship doesn't have the boundaries for common ground and flourishing together. And so we spent all of last week trying to make this revealed truth to us personal. That we don't have the law to earn God's love. It confirms God's love. That we have these rules within the context of relationship. Because God doesn't want us to rebel. But he wants us to willingly and lovingly and obediently step into life together with him. And all of that was simply the introduction. The first two verses. And the Lord God spoke these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Out of the land of slavery. He is the Lord our God, and he is the God who has delivered us. And now, I'm going to quickly make the turn so we can get through this in a timely manner. What are the actual commands? And we're going to take a little bit of time this morning, and we're going to go through the commands. And this is going to be the most teachy I ever get, because I just am going to have to teach you through these commands. And I want to do so in some detail so they become relevant and engaging and important to all of you. You have extensive notes in your bulletin this morning. You will have all of this to reference later. So don't, you know, if you're a note taker, and I love the note takers, don't worry. You know, you, it's, it's all there for, for future reference. But we're going to walk through these because this is how we confirm God's love. How many here are going to get another show of hands, do some participation? How many here uh, went through an old school catechism class whenever you were a kid? Anybody? We got some old catechized kids in the house here this morning. Oh, catechism. What were the movements of catechism? In the tradition of the Reformed churches, 
which we are a part of, we would traditionally go through the Apostles' Creed, which is a series of statements, each one representing a movement of Scripture. We talk about those statements and where it's found in the Bible. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And then we would go through the Lord's Prayer, because this teaches us how to pray. And then we would go to the Ten Commandments. Then we would go to the Ten. This has been a classic part of educating people to understand our faith, to move forward and continue in obedience to our God. So we'll swing back around. We'll talk more about that obedience on the other side here of the commands. But what are the commands actually saying? What are they actually revealing to us? The first command. You shall have no other gods before me. Tell you what, for the, let's... um. Yeah, pull them up on screen and do it. We're going to kind of speed through this. I'm going to walk through it, and I'm going to kind of pull some things together. Hopefully, it'll be a lot of fun. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, that word before is an interesting word. It can be a preposition. It can be a conjunction. It can be an adverb. I bet you didn't think about before and all those words uh, earlier. You probably didn't think you were going to get a grammar lesson here in the sermon today. And don't worry, there won't be much of a grammar lesson, except that that word before is the key word. And we tend to think, well, well we tend to think about it like this. There can be a way of saying, like, uh, you know, what comes in order of sequence, but then there's just the, the plain meaning of the word of, for example, I'm standing before you standing in, in, in front of you. And there's actually a very literal meaning to this wh where God is saying, don't have any other gods before me. Don't have any other gods in front of me, between me and you. Now, that's very relevant, of course, in the ancient world because they literally put gods before them. They were called idols. We'll get into that in just a second with the second command. But they would literally put gods before themselves, and then worship the God, and then get on with their lives. And what our God is saying, don't put anything before me. Don't put your job before me. Don't put your goals before me. Don't put, no, nothing should come before me. There's another meaning to that, and actually some of the older translations would actually say, you shall have no other gods, and, and it was actually, it's kind of a harsh word. It's actually translated this way in other areas of the Bible, in hostility towards. That really actually brings it out then. You shall have no other gods in hostility, in conflict, fighting against me. I am the Lord, your God. And this is how we are to relate and be in relationship towards one another. Which leads then into, of course, the second command. Do not make for yourself any idols. Now, quite literally, what this is conjuring up is idol making. Fashioning images to represent gods in the context of the pantheon of the ancient world. These would be gods of the crops and gods of the rain and gods of the sun and gods of the moon. Everything they just actually came out of Egypt in a world consumed with idolatry. And God is saying simply, you, you cannot put me in a box and confine me to an image. Don't even bother trying. He's trying to free them from the oppression of idolatry. Now, the text gets interesting here. It goes on to say that I am a jealous God. And then there's some harsh words in this command. 
Again, I encourage you to read this for yourself. It says about, you know, punishing the generation, you know, people that, you know, worshiping these other gods and, and then being faithful and bringing blessing to thousands of generations for their obedience. Now, we're not going to have time to break that all apart, except I will say this, and I'm going to assume that you are smart and engaged and following along. We have seen this reality play itself out. There are families where, and we're just going to, I'm not trying to try and point anybody out, but it may feel personal depending on your life experience. There are families where maybe God, uh, dad made an idol out of making money in his job. And your relationship with dad suffered. And that pain has trickled down through maybe now generations of people that put something before their relationship in their family. Maybe, maybe somebody made, we'll just say, an addiction became their idol. And it took precedence before the relationship that you had with a parent. And you have paid for that curse, perhaps through generations. Now, perhaps a parent decided their own pleasure, their own happiness mattered most. And they broke a commitment, they broke a covenant, and then you grew up without a parent in the home. And that has trickled down through the generations. There is a transparent reality to this that plays itself out. When we put things before God and we put things before our relationship in our own context of our own families, that brings pain, that brings suffering, that brings sorrow for perhaps generations. And yet, faithfulness to God and obedience to God, we're, ter well, we're, ter uh, we're told, can bring blessing then for thousands of generations. So, you have shall have no other gods before me. Don't make for yourself any idols. Don't let anything come between us. And then the third movement is do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. We had wonderful neighbors who became dear friends at, at our last home. And these friends were not Christians, not churchgoers, not believers, and, and openly so. And we have wonderful friendship, and we still do to this day. When our kids were very young, we were all playing, hanging out in the backyard. And I remember this moment where one of the kids yelled, oh my God. And if you're like me, if you're a Christian, if you grew up in the context I grew, grew up in, it's hard to even say that word, right? It's hard to even blurt that out because you're told not to do that. Our neighbors were amazing. I'll never forget when she went over to her kid and she said, we do not say that in front of the sailors. And we should not say that ever in front of anybody because for their faith, that is misusing the name of their God. And we will respect that always. I was blown away and touched and how much deeper were we able to go into relationship then with their simple respect for our faith in the name of our God? You don't want your name misused. You don't want your words misquoted. You do not want to be misrepresented. And neither does our God. Be mindful of how we invoke and use the very name of our God revealed to us. So, no other gods before me, and no idols, and don't misuse his name. And then the fourth one is, we remember the Sabbath by keeping it holy. Let me just say two things about this. One, some people are workaholics in today's world. 
and they work and they work and they work and they work and they never take a break. So if you are a workaholic, guess what? You are more than what you do. You are more than what you produce. You are more than a paycheck at the end of the day. You are more than the work that you can do and accomplish. And you need not be a workaholic. Imagine the joy of being commanded to stop working. <laughs> the joy after generations of wake up, make bricks, wake up, make bricks, wake up, make bricks, repeat until you die, to being told, as a, is this an oppressive command? Oh, this is just always amazing. I always come back around to it. These commands are not oppressive. They are freeing. Stop working and rest. And there's a flip side to it. If you're not working at all, get a job. So I mean, if you're if you're not, I mean, I mean, if you're that age or that stage, they're come. I know, I, I get it, I get it. But in different seasons, and it, but we we do have to do some work to get rest. We are called to create. We're called to till. We're called to steward. We're we're called to do some great things for God. We do need to do some work to 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 enjoy the rest. But what a gift, what a gift from God to rest. And the interesting thing about this, and so many people miss this, it doesn't say go to church, go, going to church is awesome. It doesn't say sing songs, singing songs is awesome. It doesn't say lift up your prayers, praying is awesome. It doesn't say give your offerings, offerings are awesome. They continue the mission of the God. It doesn't say anything about that. All it says is stop working, rest. How simple can that be? And yet, how can we keep messing it up? <laughs> Just stop and take your rest. And for us, take our rest in Jesus Christ. We'll come back around to that. Going to whip through some things here. Five begins to make the turn. Honor your father and mother. Some mothers and fathers make that very easy for their children. Some mothers and fathers have made that almost impossible. And we recognize that. But let us all try as fathers, as mothers, as parents to live honorable lives. And let us as children always honor our fathers and mothers as an act of worship unto our God. We'll take six through nine as a lump. We are told in six through nine not to murder, not to commit adultery, not to steal, and not to lie. And if you want to murder people, if you want to break covenant vows and commit adultery, if you really love stealing things and you love to lie to people, you might be a sociopath. You need help and don't come to my house, I don't think. I, I, I mean, when we, we, again, we think about these as oppressive, oh, these commands, God is keeping us from fun. If you really think murder is fun, again, you need help. <laughs> If you really love lying, you really need help. I, 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 again, are, are, the, are these bad commands? Give me some affirmation. The preacher, I, I mean, are these awful things? Like you really want to murder and steal and commit adultery and lie? If you do, you have deep issues <laughs> and you need help and you should find help. We should all welcome these things from others around us and for ourselves. I don't want to be a murderer. <laughs> I don't want to steal. I hope I'm always telling the truth. I mean, these are good commands. And then the tenth one, 
moves us from actions to attitude. The 10th one is interesting that you can command it at all. To command a feeling, to command an attitude, to command this disposition, and yet our God does this. He commands us, do not covet. Do not be a covetous person. Do not nurture that thing in you that says you want what others have, and it's even best to take it from them. Do not nurture that type of heart. Now, we get through those commands. And then we come to Jesus. And all along in this process, we have been saying that the Exodus story is pointing us to Jesus, our deliverer. That Moses was born in Egypt and was born under an oppressive tyrant who sought to take his life. Just as Jesus was born under an oppressive tyrant who sought to have him killed. Moses found refuge in the very land that sought to kill him just as Jesus, as Father Joseph being warned in a dream, escaped and found refuge in the land of Egypt. That Moses went out to the desert for 40 years for preparation to be the shepherd of God's people. Jesus only took 40 days but went out to the desert and was prepared for his launch into public ministry and to lead his people. That Moses guided his people to the promised land and deliver them into freedom, just as Jesus delivers to us the fulfillment of the promises of God and freedom from our slavery to sin. All along, the Exodus story is truth, is reality. It is events that happened, but that set the stage for the final Exodus and deliverance that would come to us through Jesus Christ. And so, just as Moses went to the mountain to give us the words of God, the laws, the decrees, the commands of our God. So Jesus, when we pick up in Matthew, goes to a mount and begins to give the people the fulfillment of the words of the laws of God. In your bulletin, you'll find these printed there for you, so you can reference them whenever you want. But our God said, to Moses on the mountain, you shall have no other gods before me. And then Jesus says in Matthew 4.10, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And God said, Do not make any idols. And Jesus says in Matthew 6.24, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Perhaps the most tempting and alluring idol of all. And God said, do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And Jesus said, again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all. And he goes on to say, let your yes be yes and your no be no, but don't invoke God's name for these petty things. And God said, keep the Sabbath holy. And Jesus says, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Our rest is found ultimately in Jesus Christ, our salvation. And God said, honor your parents. But Jesus says, and this is one of the hard ones here, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He is inviting us into a new family. And imagine how these words have landed on widows, on orphans, on aliens with no family. To say all of us now together become the very family of God and honoring God above all and one another now. 
as the body of Christ. And God said, do not murder. But Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Jesus wanting to root out not just the action of murder, but the attitude of anger that leads to violence. God said, do not commit adultery, but Jesus said, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And God said, do not steal, but Jesus says in Matthew 5, anyone who wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well, intensifying yet even this true a culture of generosity that gives to the point of sacrifice. God said, do not lie. Jesus says, I tell you that everyone who everyone will give account on the day of judgment for every empty word that they have spoken. I don't know why, but this one was working me over this week and all of the careless words I mumble throughout the day. And then finally, God said, do not covenant. But Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And at the preface of all this, we read at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but I have come to fulfill them. When we turn to the catechism that instructed us in the faith, let me just say this. I, if you grew up in this, I've, just, I, I've, I've, I've stolen all of my material, so I should probably confess that. I've, I've told you nothing that you did not get years ago as a child sitting with a pastor or an elder or somebody in the classroom. When you open up the words of one of these catechisms, for example, the Heidelberg Catechism, the first movement is called Humankind's Misery, which sounds really harsh. So there's not too many questions and answers around that one because we can pretty quickly make the case that there has been a lot of human misery. You know what step two is? God's deliverance. God's deliverance is step two, and it primarily teaches us about the deliverance the life, the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And step three is of gratitude. And what is the very first thing that begins the of gratitude section? These commands. These commands are how we show our gratitude to God. Living by these commands isn't how we earn God's love, it's how we confirm God's love and mean to live in gratitude with our God. Jesus was asked, what is the greatest command? And now that's a curious question, isn't it? What's the greatest command? Now, if I was about, if I was standing before somebody and, and, and they pulled a gun on me and said, I'm about to kill you, I, I tell you what I think the greatest command is going to be right now. I'm going to say number six is the greatest command. <laughs> Don't murder me. <laughs> that's going to that's be really, uh, if I know somebody is lying outright to me in a way that's going to cost me something, I know what I'm going to think the greatest command right then and there is. I'm going to say number nine is really important. <laughs> Don't lie to me. There's an interesting question, isn't it? What's the greatest command? Well, Jesus boils it down. The greatest command 
is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. This encapsulates all of the law and all the prophets and all of the others play out a commentary. But this commentary for us, these ten commands, show us how to confirm a life of obedience. And Jesus, in John chapter 14, verse 15, he says, If you love me, if you want to obey this command that I've given, the greatest command, love the Lord your God, all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. If you love me, he says, you'll obey these commands. And so, this has been given for us, not to earn God's love, but to confirm God's love for us. These commands are our means of showing our gratitude to God. Salvation means we get to put no other gods before him. Salvation means we don't need to make any idols anymore to worship him. Salvation means that we honor his name. Salvation means that we get to keep a day of holy rest and worship him. Salvation means that we get to honor our father and mother. Salvation means that we do not want to murder another image bearer of God. Salvation means that we honor the covenant that we have made with others and the covenant that others have made between themselves. Salvation means that we do not steal another's possession. Salvation means that we don't lie to one another. Salvation means that we have no need to covet anymore because salvation means we have life in Christ. Amen, friends? Salvation means we don't need to covet anymore because we have all that we stand in need of through Christ, our deliverer, Christ, our redeemer, Christ, our salvation. And so, friends, I commend to you the life of loving our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And one of the most practical means of doing that is by simple obedience to what has been revealed to us. So with that, the band can come on up and they can get ready to take us out and worship as we together now, as the people of God, seek to go out and live by these words of God. And let me end now on this. I think we've made the case now that we're not trying to earn God's love anymore, but it has been given to us that these confirm God's love. I think we've made the case that these are not oppressive commands that God has given. Again, unless you're a sociopath and you're like, I really wanted to murder people. But again, your problems then go so much deeper than that. These commands being lived out as the community of God the witness of this, the witness of this will transform the world. The witness of a people worshiping God, the witness of a people embracing the rest that comes in Jesus Christ, the witness of a people who do not murder, who do not steal, who do not commit adultery, do not lie, who do not covet, but have all that they stand in need of through Jesus Christ, their Redeemer will begin the transformation, not just of our lives, but the transformation of the world around us. Let me pray for us. Let me pray for you that we will be a people who show our love to Jesus Christ through obedience to these commands. And if one of these has you know, really kind of like worked you over, I just invite you just to take some time before the close of worship here today to let God do something deeper in you. 
Maybe something has come between you and God. And you know you need to just take some steps to move out of that. Maybe on the other end, you know that you are just been living in a, a covetous kind of mindset and heart disposition, thinking there isn't enough, there's more, that, that, that you, you want more and more, that, that your all in all isn't Jesus Christ. Or maybe it's something between, you feel free to just do the work you need to do with God while I pray and while we worship. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for delivering these decrees that bring flourishing, that bring life, that bring blessing, that bring beauty, that bring common flourishing for all people, that bring community, that bring safety and security and justice in homes, in marriages, between parents and children, and between us and our neighbors. There is not one thing wrong with any one of these laws. This is your perfect will revealed to us, and let us live them thoroughly, completely, joyfully as your people. Not that we will achieve it this side of heaven and your glorious return, but yet we may keep striving more and more out of obedience and gratitude for the life that we have in you, Jesus. Thank you for showing us this way to live. We thank you for this. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.